You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. It is good to see everybody here today. Thank God for the rain. Okay, would you like to see what happens when you don't get rain? I spoke to a couple farmers this morning and they were extremely happy and I said, when my farmer is happy, that means my dinner will be happy. And everybody said amen to that. Anyway, we're going to continue on with a series today called Flourish Under Adversity. And actually, I was making some comments just here about farming because we're actually looking at a situation where Jesus fed a number of people. It is a very familiar story. It's often referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. And because of familiarity with the story, we often lose some specifics and some details inside of the story. And if you would like to know what those details are, that's why you come to church. I'm going to show some of those things today. So would everybody stand for the reading of the Word? We're going to look at Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. It's a lengthy passage, so just read with me if you would begin in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, Jesus, I pray as we look at the word today that you would help us to grow, to develop, and learn what your word has to say to us today. I pray the values and the morals and our thought processes would come into alignment with what you have to say to us today. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. You can be seated. So we're looking at this story today, and we've been using the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to touch, first of all, upon this story, and then I'm going to get more detailed about the context and what this story has to say about the context that the, the Mark is addressing to his writers in his gospel. But this particular story, the miracle, is actually mentioned in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of the few stories that makes all four gospels. And the, one of the reasons it's interesting that it does is because they all were writing to a unique audience. And as a result of that, even though each gospel had a different audience and a purpose, all four gospel writers felt this miracle was relevant to their audience. So Matthew was writing to the Jewish people, trying to convince them that he was the Messiah that they were waiting on. Mark was writing to the Christians who were uh, being persecuted, and many of them executed in Rome in the Colosseum because they had been accused by Nero of, of some crimes against the state, which they had not done. But Nero was using that as a cover. We read in the, in the Luke that he was addressing Gentiles who had no religious background whatsoever. And so they were just trying to understand who is this Jesus, where did he come from, and why did he have such an impact. And then John was just trying to prove overall that Jesus was the Son of God. He was not just a good, moral guy. He was the actual Son of God. And it's ironic, four different audiences, and they all said, that story works for the audience that I want to talk to. So it's really, you could, you could actually say this, you could preach this story four different ways and still adhere to the biblical, uh, the sound doctrine and teaching that it entails. But it, each one saw it, said this, that story, that miracle that Jesus did is applicable to the audience that I am writing to. So it's, and the other part of this is that's one of the reasons that we teach this so early to our children. Anybody who's been exposed to Christianity in an early age, this is probably one of the first stories that you ever hear. Now, granted, it also provides great illustrations for kids. You know, I can remember as a kid when I first heard the story, I lifted my hand, and I, I really did. I said this in the class. I said, if he can multiply loaves, can he multiply M&Ms? And the teacher, to uh, keep everybody's attention in the room, said, yes, he can, but he's never had a need to do that. <laughs> so I have been waiting on Jesus to multiply M&Ms ever since. But anyway, so it's a, it's a story that works. Like I said, it's a great story for any type of audience. Uh, it has a variety of application. It also is very understandable, even by children. But a little bit of insight about this is this, is if you go to the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, though they go one step further in the miraculous account of feeding 5,000. And let me just pause there. Did you know that it really wasn't 5,000? It says 5,000 men were fed. And we know in that particular day, they would have likely had a wife and or children. So the conservative number is, it probably was 15,000 or more. How many know that really makes it an awesome miracle? Okay, but we, it's, it's the American way of, well, it says 5,000 men, so he fed 5,000. But we know that it wasn't strictly a men's gathering. Okay, so anyway. They go on and they tell another miracle in Matthew and Mark. Luke and John did not include it, but they both mention another miracle where Jesus fed 4,000. 
doesn't, it's a story that one doesn't get as much attention. And some of you may say, well, why doesn't it get more attention? Because Americans are drawn to the biggest number that is available to them. There's the feeding of the 5,000. There's a feeding of the 4,000. We just like the 5,000 because it's bigger. Americans always like everything bigger. So we don't talk much about the 4,000. We always talk about that number of 5,000, which is actually way bigger. It's probably 15, or as I said, 15 or more. Okay, so they tell this second story. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to read the, uh, 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 there's a variety of things that surround the story, but I'm just going to get to the meat of that uh, particular context. So this is in Mark chapter 8. So in Mark 6, he talks about the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families. And then in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 and 9, he mentions again that Jesus is now feeding 4,000. So let's, let me just read this. You follow along. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. So this is interesting, a little bit of different. By the way, notice the differences and notice the similarities. But what's different here is, whereas Jesus fed these 5,000 men and their families in the previous story, it appeared to happen in a day. This one happens over a period of three days. Which, by the way, Jesus must be awesome if you can hold your congregation for three days. I've been tempted, but I had compassion. But anyway, holding an audience for three days, pretty impressive. Must be something special, obviously something special, unique. He said, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. Let me pause here. When you read that word loaves, many folks, you know, they get this mentality, they know that it's a loaf of wonder bread. That is an American version. That's not the kind of loaf we're talking about. We're talking, a, 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 their, their loaves were, were in, in a circle, and it was, it was basically a really thick type pizza crust and you would just tear it off okay and so when we talk these loaves literally you could stack them on top of one another and go we got seven loaves Jesus right here okay and so you'd hand that out and people would tear a piece off that was before we knew about COVID <laughs> okay so anyway just I know the hygiene practices back then were a little more challenging maybe for us today, but it's how they would do it. They would hand out those loaves, and that way you just tear a piece of it off. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks. And notice it's seven here. It was five loaves, two fish in the previous story. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. Never gives us a count. Just says, oh, by the way, there were also a few fish. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls. In the previous story, it was 12 of broken pieces and were left over. About 4,000 were present. So here's the question. You're sitting in Rome, you're on trial for your life, your family's on trial, it's probably, you're probably going to be found guilty, it's a, it's a rigged court system, Nero's covering his tracks because he burnt the city of Rome to the ground, the Christians are the great escape uh, hatch for him, let's blame them, 
they, besides, they talked about fire coming down from heaven and all this kind of stuff. And so they're just real easy targets to put this on. And you go, what is, what is feeding 5,000 people and their family, 5,000 men and their families got to do with a person who's about to face death? And then you go, and not only that, he mentions it two chapters later. He tells of another story of where Jesus fed 4,000. What does feeding people of that magnitude got to do with Christians who are in such dire straits? It's kind of like it's a story. It's like, I'm not saying the story isn't impactful. I'm not saying the story isn't important. I'm not saying the, the story isn't divine. But you just go, what does that say to a person in that context, and how does it help them? What does it mean? What does it say? And right there is why you came to church to find all that out, didn't you? So we're going to look at this from those eyes, from those standpoints. Those followers of Christ, as they read the story, because they would process, like I said, they would process stories a little bit differently than how you and I have been taught to process a story. So, again, these stories were not, they didn't read these stories. There was only a, a copy, so somebody was reading the story to them. And it was important that they be able to pick up the principles of a story, as we call it, in narrative form. As it's being read, what they heard and what they were able to derive, what was that? So let's begin. Number one, everybody read this out loud. Being with Jesus, being with Jesus helps us to face life challenges. It's a rather unique, I included this because it's important to know the, the momentum that is leading to this type of miracle. It says here, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So the context is this. Things are going so well, they forget to eat. And I would imagine many of us in this room have had a day or an event like that in our life where things were going so well, you were so engrossed in what you were doing, you were so excited that before you knew it, you realized, it, I'll say this, it was the hunger pains that brought you back to reality. And you went, oh my gosh, I, oh, it's what time, and man, I haven't eaten, and oh, okay. And it's not a bad thing, it's a great thing. But what I want to point out is what Jesus' response was. So let me just say, this is a preacher's dream world right here. The response and the outpouring is so great that the preachers forget to eat. Because things, you live for when the gospel is being so well received like that. And what does Jesus do? Hey guys, we need to pull back. And we, we need to go spend some time together. Why is that? Because I want to share a principle with you. You probably have seen, you just maybe haven't had it articulated this way. Let me give it to you, and it's this. We have lost more ministers in the gospel. We have lost them. We've lost most of them to success, not failure. You know when, you know when they messed up? when everything was going really good. They were hitting on all cylinders, man. It was go, 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 go. Everything they did worked. Everything they said was received. People were turning out. They didn't fail because it wasn't working. They failed 
because it was going so well, listen to me, they lost their personal relationship with Jesus because success crowded out the relationship. Let me tell you something. Success is like a drug. You say, is our pastor getting, relax, Pastor Greg's good today. Okay? But I'm, I've been at this long enough to go, and, and I've had friends, okay? So this is not a concept that it's abstract, it is personal. I even look at friends that I have lost over the years and decades of my ministry, and I look, you know when things went, when they, fight, when they fell apart? It's when things were going super. It was going awesome. And Jesus' response was this, hey, fellas, you need to pull away, and you need to spend time with me. Relate, listen to me, relationship with Jesus takes priority over any ministry success that happens in life. I thought you could do better than that. What happens is this, many times when we struggle, have you ever noticed when you're struggling, you got all the time in the world to talk to Jesus? Oh, I mean, it's a, oh God, I mean, you, you know, you turn the radio off, you're driving down the road, oh God, you know, you're... You're in a drive-thru, and when they call for your order, you're in the middle of, oh, God, help me. Oh, sorry, you don't need order. Yeah. You have all the time in the world to talk to God when you're desperate. But when you're successful, isn't it amazing how much time you don't have for him? Well, I would like to, but see, I have this. I would like to, but because of this. And Jesus shows us this. He helps us in our life's challenge. The other side of this is this. How I pre, how, my relationship with Jesus today gives me the strength for my tomorrows. And sometimes people don't have strength for tomorrow because they didn't sow into the strength that they need today. A lot of times our ability to weather the storms of life is determined by the momentum that we are starting in life today. One of the things we grossly underestimate as followers of Christ is that word momentum. That today's choices and decisions create a momentum. And that's my next point. Read it out loud. The good you do in life runs ahead of you and prepares your tomorrows. Look what happened in the story. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So Jesus is trying to get him and his disciples away for a little rest and I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and it's very interesting. You do have the ability to run along the bank. Now, you've got to hustle because it's huge, but it's amazing when people are excited how fast they can move. And they get to where they're going, and they find the crowds have already begun to form. And it's a principle of this. The good you do today has the ability to run ahead of you and carry in tomorrow's momentum. And so sometimes people are trying to reap a harvest on tomorrow and next week, and they're not sowing good today. But yet somehow they expect next week to go well. I made poor decisions today, but it'll all work out next week. No, you reap what you sow. So here's an example. We got some farmers in our church, and I was talking to them in the uh, first service. Uh, most, of, mo some of our, most of our farmers like first service. Because some of them have got to go home and still work the farm even on a Sunday. We even have a dairy cow guy. He says, you know how many vacation days cows take? None. 
We got to milk those babies twice a day. It's Christmas, we milk them twice. It's vacation. He said, it's just, it's, it's a 24-7 job, okay? So I appreciate people who have those types of responsibilities because I like my milk. And specifically, ice cream. <laughs> I love what milk can be transformed into. And everybody said amen. <laughs> amen. So, but here's the thing. They sowed five, six months ago stuff in the ground. And within the next 45 days, they'll be hitting the fields. You see, the momentum that they established five, six months ago will have another kind of momentum in the next 45 days. You can't suddenly get the momentum of harvesting in 45 days and you didn't establish the momentum of harvesting back five to six months ago. But people try to do that. Now, I'm not saying that God can't suddenly do things for us and suddenly give us turnarounds. He does. But there's a thing called discipleship. Discipleship is a process. And most people just want to live with divine events. And he didn't call us to go and live as converts. He called us to live as disciples, which is ongoing development. So I have to be willing to engage in, my, in a process, which is ongoing. So I need to know how to make decisions today that create a momentum for me tomorrow, that create a momentum for me next week, next month. Okay? So that something is happening, and here we see this. The reason there were so many people showing up is because of all the good that Jesus did the previous days. The good you do in life runs ahead of you and prepares your tomorrows. You want a promotion? Do a stellar job tomorrow. Now don't expect to be promoted by 5 o'clock. But why don't you create a momentum of being a stellar worker who does stellar work every day? And that momentum has the ability to position. People want raises just because they're showing up. They ain't doing nothing, but they're showing up. And you're like, hey, the day of just showing up is not good enough, man. You got you to do your job. You got to do it well. You got to do it superbly. And you know, when you create a track record, it creates momentum. And listen to me, it creates opportunities. And some of those opportunities you had no ability to forecast. But the point being is this tomorrow's opportunities are established by the momentum that you create today in your life with choices and decisions that you make. And everybody said, Amen. amen. Number three, read it out loud. In our challenges, Jesus looks at us. It says here, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, it doesn't say, he didn't say, oh my goodness. He didn't pant. He says, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. I think this is important because it also says the same context when he fed the 4,000, it said Jesus had compassion. So why was Jesus having, so most of us would see a crowd and get excited. So Jesus had compassion. What's going on here? Because sometimes in life we have the ability, if we're not careful, we have a conscience or subconscious view of God that can sabotage what God, how God sees us and what God wants to do. So let me share this. There's not a person in this room that hasn't made a mistake. And everybody said Amen. 
you know, you're saying amen about yourself, not amen about the person sitting next to you. Just want to clarify that. Don't. Okay. We have a, we have a rule at the bridge. Confess your own sins. Never confess other people's. Confess your own. Okay. So anyway, we've all made mistakes. Now, how we approach God has a lot to say with how we view God. And, here, and please hang with me on this so that you can understand the context. So you might hear a sentence and kind of go, oh, just hang on. Give me the paragraph. Some people will approach God with this. God, I'm such a loser. I'm such a waste. Such an idiot. And what happens is this. We can get into what I call self-deprivation. And we somehow subconsciously think, think if, I, if I get into self-deprivation, I alleviate God's judgment look on me. So I'll, I'll engage in self-deprivation and maybe God will lighten up on his judgment. No, I want you to, look, I want you to hear me. Did you know that God not only sent his son Jesus to die for the sins of the world, he sent him to die for the sins that were going to be committed? He just wasn't fixing what had happened. He was also saying, let me give you a future because I also know you're going to screw up again. And again. And again. So I just don't want to offer forgiveness for what you've done. I want to position you so that you always have forgiveness available to you. So I'm going to give you, so that, that's, that's not a God of judgment, that's a God of compassion who says, I get that you're flawed. Now, if we're not careful, we'll take that to the extreme and go the wrong way with it. We'll start to say, well, okay, well, since, you know, well, I guess I can just do whatever. God's pre- No, 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 no. God says, I want you to give me your best and I want you to do your best. But I, you, we both know that your best is not enough. And God says, that's where I come alongside of you, is when you, when you do your best and you come up short, Jesus says, that's where my work starts in you. So doing my best that I can keeps my heart right, okay? It, it keeps my heart to the, it keeps it in alignment with where it needs to go. But on the other side of that, I have to recognize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's why I need him is because my best effort won't get me there. And so we need to approach it from this standpoint, that you have a God who's compassionate, who goes, if you're ready to own your sin, I'm ready to forgive your sin. But you've got to own it. Think of this. He says in the book of James, if... Or, or John, in the book, 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. You know, that seems too simple. You mean, if I, if I admit it, if I say it, you'll forgive. Yeah. I don't know, God just seems like something in there ought to be working off. You know, is there a addendum in there somewhere you know it just seems like i ought to have you're saying that if i own up to it and i ask for forgiveness that's it yeah god says that's it if you confess your sins so notice the word confess i have to say it he says i forgive and you know the brain just goes i don't know it just seems like i ought to be doing more (laughs) because after all that's what we would put on other people wouldn't we see we start shadowing God with our expectations. I don't care how much of a screw-up you think you are today. 
He sees you with compassion. And says, if you'll ask for forgiveness, I'll wipe it clean. You don't have to do the self-deprivation thing. You don't have to do the loser mentality. Listen, we're all sinners. If I was perfect, I would not have to come to church. So by the fact that you're here, I know you have issues. (laughs) Some of you never thought of that. Yeah, if you're perfect, why are you here? We're here because we're all being perfected. And everybody said amen. Amen. And that's amen about yourself, not amen about your neighbor. Number four, read it out loud. Being in God's will does not exempt us from needs or crisis. Now see, I think it should be. You know, we get that mentality, and and these Christians who are in the throes of death facing Rome, they're thinking, and the reason I'm here is because I'm doing what is right. And what is right is bringing the wrath of Rome, and Rome is condemning me to death, not because I did wrong, but because I'm doing right. And they are pressuring me and my family to cave in. My problems aren't associated with doing wrong. My problems are associated with doing right. Sometimes we need to be reminded. It says, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a year and a half wages. Do you see the exclamation point? I don't know what it is, but we somehow think if we say it louder, it's more understandable. Have you ever seen somebody talking to somebody who doesn't speak English well, and they try to explain it one time and they don't get it, so somehow they think if they double the volume, they suddenly will have the ability to understand English? Has anybody ever seen somebody yelling at somebody like that? Like, let me tell you, and you're like, they they don't understand what you're saying. I don't know why you think double the volume will bring a spirit of understanding here. It's not going to work. You need to find another way to communicate. Somehow we think if I get louder, it's more understandable. No. And they yell, they're yelling at Jesus. That would be how ironic, you know. That would take more than he, like, Jesus, oh yeah, I never did the math. <laughs> Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? You know why this crisis has arisen? Nobody's done anything wrong. Now, in their particular day, because of Israel and the arid climate, anytime, that you, anytime you'd go out the door, you always took a day's provisions with you, okay? Because, you know, they didn't have Chick-fil-A, Panera, they didn't have all that, you know. You went out, you were on your own. So one of the things you would teach your children early is, you know, if you're going to be a half day out, and certainly a whole day, Water and food, always take enough with you. This is just normal protocol. It's not a special day. It's just how we live because we are very uncertain of the available resources out there. So you always take provision of food and water with you for the day. And it says it is now very late. So people have expended the resources. And the disciples are becoming worried. They're thinking of the people. The crisis has not arisen because somebody was negligent. They weren't ignorant. They, they, it, it just is a part 
of life as it happens. Many of you know what I'm talking about. You got up in the morning and life was grand. By the time you got home at the end of the day, you're like, unbelievable that that kind of day was awaiting me. I've got this weight on me. This, this, this event happened to me. And I'm walking. I did not see it coming today. And isn't that God's grace just to let you go ahead and have a good night's sleep? Yeah. And it just happens. You see, sometimes live. By the way, Jesus was perfect. And look what they did to him. So, so much for if I'm perfect, if I do everything right, I'll have no problems. I will tell you this, in, 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 it's either 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, Paul was writing to Timothy, he was the pastor of the church, and Paul wrote, I'm going to quote it, this is what he wrote to Timothy, quote, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted, unquote. Now there's a verse you can amen. He doesn't say might be, could be, will be. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Wow. So we read here, being in God's will doesn't always exempt us from needs and crises. Why is that? Because we're not in heaven yet if you haven't noticed. This is, this is earth. It's imperfect. Even, listen, so some people will say this, well then why bother doing what's good? If it's not going to work, if it's not going to pay off, let me tell you something as a follower of Christ, and this is part of the discipleship process. Do you know why we do right? Not because there's a payoff. Not because it always works out. Jesus did what was right, and he got nailed to a cross. Okay. Now, the resurrection had a way of changing everybody's perspective after that. But the point being is, so why do we do what's right? I can tell you, as a follower of Christ, because that's what we do. That's a value. We do what's right because it's right. Not because of some payoff. Not because of some promise. As a follower of Christ, I do what's right because he said that's right. I do it because that's what he approves. We need to get out of this uh, negotiating thing. Well, if I do what's right, like what's in it for me? I don't know. Salvation? I mean, come on. Why, is, why do we always do this? Well, what, how about, I do what's right whether there's anybody watching or not. I do what's right whether there's a payoff or not. I do what's right whether it works out or it doesn't work out. I do what's right because he said that's right. I'm a follower of Christ, and that's what we do as followers. If he says it's the right thing, that's what I do. And you're right. Sometimes it might cost me to do the right thing. But who said it always works out in this life? You know why there's a final judgment? Some of us have never thought of it. You know why there's a final judgment? Because not everything gets fixed here. See, if everything worked out here, we don't need a final judgment. But some things don't get judged in this life. And God says, don't worry. If, you think they, if they think they made it to the grave before somebody caught them, don't worry. God says, I have books. And it records the deeds while done in the body. There's a judgment. 
So we do what's right because he said it's right. Everybody said amen. amen. Number five, I got a bunch of these. And we're just going to go until I'm done. Anyway. <laughs> Everybody read. I'm just kidding. Two more. Here we go. Five. Read it. Faith acknowledges the challenge and then prepares for the miraculous. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifty. So a couple things there. He says, how many loaves you got? We find out later there were seven. Faith is not denying that there is a problem. Years ago, decades ago, there was a movement that said faith was never acknowledging what was wrong or what the challenge was. Faith was not uh, acknowledging that the devil had a foothold or that you were, you know, it was faith to not admit you were sick. And I'm like, why you sneeze and cough? And they said, it's faith is not. And I'm like, no, faith is acknowledging. See, here's the thing. People say, well, I want to see a healing miracle. Well, then somebody has to say I'm sick. We fail to understand that for the miraculous to happen, we have to identify that there's a deficiency. Otherwise, we'll never acknowledge that it was miraculous. So we have faith is acknowledging there's a deficit in something. It could be physical health. It could be finance. It could be wisdom, knowledge, all these things. We have to admit that there is a deficiency. And then we ask God to help with that deficiency. And when he does, we call it a miracle. But I don't need a miracle if I'm not willing to admit I got a problem. So faith acknowledges the challenge and then prepares for the miraculous. So notice what Jesus did. It says, he goes, go find out what we do have. And then he says this. So in anticipation of the miraculous... Let's begin to put people in groups of 50 and 100. Why? Because if you're going to feed that many people, you have to have some sense of order and some way of identifying who's been fed and who has not been fed. So I like the fact that Jesus said, here's the challenge. we got to feed these people. But he also begins to take action. We need to know this, that we always are required to have some skin in the game when it comes to miraculous. Everybody wants to, so let's look at the story, let's look at the story of Noah. Noah had to build an ark even though it had never rained. And he was miles from a body of water. He's literally building a boat in the middle of nowhere. And he says water is going to fall out of the sky. Nobody says there's, you know, in all of humanity there's never been water fall out of the sky. And how exactly is there water up there? If there was water up there, wouldn't it have fallen on us already? Faith acknowledges the challenge. God's going to judge the world and then prepares for the miraculous. He says, we're going to build a boat. And by the way, it took decades. He, just, he didn't have to keep faith for a few years. He had to keep faith for decades while he built that boat. Everybody wants to be the David that defeats a Goliath. But what was David? David's challenge was this. There's a giant, and nobody wants to fight this guy. And David says, I'll fight. But David got five stones. He prepares for the miraculous. We know that he shot one stone, right? Got him on the first shot. We sometimes forget. David went with four other stones just in case. I love, I love the optimism of David. Well, if I miss, I'll get another shot in. You're like, 
nah, I think that's probably it, David, but God bless you for thinking that you're going to get another at least four shots in. Good for you. Yeah. He acknowledged the challenge. There's a giant. He's bigger than me. And he prepared for the miraculous. I'll take five stones. We can go through all of Scripture. You look at, you look at Joseph. Joseph served under Pharaoh in the book of Genesis. He prepared. He acknowledged the challenge. There's a famine. He prepared. He saved up food for seven years for the seven years of famine, right? How many people can say, you talk about solving world hunger. I'm a guy who actually solved it for seven years. I fed the world. But he had to acknowledge there was a challenge coming, and he had to prepare for it. Which takes me to my last point. Everybody read it out loud. As we serve, as we serve, the miraculous occurs. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute them to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and the, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. I'm okay picking up the bread. I don't eat drop fish. <laughs> yeah, I am not making that up, folks. My kids uh, were in to visit us this last weekend. And uh, so last Sunday, we had all five grandkids. Had to come to church to rest. <laughs> Ages two to nine. A lot of energy in the room, lots. So one of the nights this past week, they said, hey, you know, let's go out. Let's go get sushi. And this is my response. I don't eat bait. Sorry. Oh, come on, man. Nope. Nope. You guys go on ahead. We'll watch all five kids. I'd rather, eat all, I'd rather have all five kids than eat sushi. We'll watch the kids. Me and, me and your mom, we're going to put on hamburgers on the grill. Well done. Yeah. We sometimes miss that part of the story. We just think it was all bread. It says they were picking up fish. That's another level of faith that I've not been able to enter into yet. As we serve, the miraculous happens. And we never read here how it all happened. It just happened while they served. Notice that? It just, they just started. Here's what we got. Five loaves, two fish. Start. You're almost like, well, that's not going to take very long. I mean, <laughs> you know, one group of 50 will knock that out easy. And... The miracle is in serving. So let me, let me just say this. People want to see the miraculous, but they don't want to get their hands dirty. But it's in getting your hands dirty that you see the miraculous. It amazes me, farming. One kernel of corn into the ground. One. And a couple months later, there's a whole ear 
and it can have up to 100 seeds on it. How, how does one seed become 100? You say, well, pastor, you know, if you'd go to biology class, they taught you that. And I go, I know I went. I just didn't listen. <laughs> you see, a seed dies, put in the soil, certain depth, certain time of the year, it dies, opens up, springs forth. Yeah, but I say, yeah, but you couldn't look in the seed and go, oh, there's 100 seeds right there. I mean, you know, but it's one seed. But the farmer has to get his hands dirty. He has to be willing to take something that he could get some money for today and be willing to forfeit today's profit and put it in the ground and leave it alone for months and trust God for the right weather to produce a harvest that one seed becomes a hundred. He has to be willing to get his hands dirty and also understand that there's a certain part that he doesn't have control over. He has to be willing to forfeit control. And people want to see the miraculous, but they don't want to get their hands dirty and they don't want to forfeit control. And I'm like, well, then you will just live with the world that you are creating and not the one that he's creating. It's in serving that you see the miraculous. I can't, we, we do a class, a, a teaching, and we're in the middle of it right now. It's called Network. Many of you have gone through this where we learn about the gifts of the Spirit and why the expression of our faith through serving is critical. And, and I use this every time we go through the class. I say, listen, so many people don't understand. They go, I just love coming to church to hear you speak and pray. I said, well, let me tell you something. Do you know how many people it takes so that I have the privilege to do that? I mean, at 7 a.m., there's a group of people that start rolling in here. Two hours before the service, 9 o'clock starts, there's a group of people that start showing up and they're turning on the lights and the air and all this and, and they're brewing the coffee. I don't know if you know that. Coffee doesn't instantly show up. The musicians are rolling in and they're getting set up and they're doing sound checks and they're going through the video stuff that I've sent in, trying to get everything, make sure that they know, understand the order. All the, and then if there's snow, there's other guys and women that show up to get things going. If there's ice, there's another crew that shows up and they get ice. It takes about 40 people showing up between 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. to do what they do, serving so that I have the privilege to do what I do. Somebody has to get their hands dirty. And in doing so, I've had those people say, I love it when people accept Jesus. I said, that's right, because you helped set the stage for that. What you did eliminated distractions. What you did set the stage for that to happen. And because you served, Somebody's life got changed today. Somebody's family's on a new trajectory because you were willing to get your hands dirty, literally dirty. Somebody's family just got a new direction today because of you. As we serve, the miraculous occurs. Everybody says, well, uh, let me see the miraculous and then maybe I'll serve. No, the miraculous has already happened. We don't need you serving now. The fish have multiplied and the bread has multiplied. You know what we need? Help us hand out bread. Help us hand out fish. And as we do that, watch the kingdom multiply. 
It's through what we do that makes a statement. Listen, that's not just church. That's your job, where you work, where you serve. If you want to make an impact, let me tell you this. Get beyond the spirit of adequacy and start serving with excellence. Do things that cause people to say, why do you do that? They don't pay you to do that. You go, that's not why I do it. I do it because my work is worship. You're right. They don't pay me to do such a good job, but that's not why I do what I do. I do this because my work is worship. And trust me, you will have conversations with people about that. That will open a door for you to be able to share your faith. Like, I just don't do things adequately anymore. Because adequacy doesn't impact anybody. Excellence does. Let me ask you this. You're about to have brain surgery. Do you want to hear, yeah, your brain surgeon's adequate. You're about to have heart surgery. Yeah, he's adequate. I'm like, yeah, brain surgery, heart surgery, adequate. Yeah, I don't think I want to talk to that guy. Who, who's really good at this? Who knows what they're doing? Yeah, you can get a new knee from that guy. He does okay. Really? You do know we're talking about people's souls, right? Do we want to be adequate? Hey, change your attorney, your your eternity. We're just going to give you an adequate presentation. Adequate. No? Top shelf excellence. Because it's people's eternity. The miraculous happens when you serve with excellence. It changes people's lives. And everybody said amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet. Come on, would you do that? And I want you to praise him for all the expressions that he's given you in life. Come on. Your job, your family, your neighborhood. And ask Jesus to help you get rid of a spirit of adequacy and say, nah, let's do this with excellence. Come on, lift your voice.